Hello and welcome to Delete Delete Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. To date, the conversations I've had with my podcast guests have tended to be about employee engagement at a collective level. But my chat with my latest guest is all about how we deal individually with stress and pressure in the workplace. Many of us will experience a period of anxiety or a crisis of confidence during our working lives. Perhaps you've been promoted into a new role and you're feeling a little bit out of your depth. It could be that you have a creeping sense that you're feeling less seen, heard or even appreciated by workmates. Perhaps you're struggling to focus after a major life event like parenthood, grief, divorce or even the threat of redundancy. Or maybe you're suffering from imposter syndrome, those feelings of anxiety and self-doubt despite being high-performing in external, objective ways. My latest guest, Paul Phillips, has spent over 25 years working in agencies in both the UK and the US, including 14 years at VCP, where he set up the specialist healthcare agency, VCP Health. He left the agency world in 2017 to offer training in various areas, including workshops on managing pressure and stress and building resilience. Paul's approach is rooted in the science of how the body and brain respond to pressure and he offers a practical, evidence-based guide to handling the challenges we face in the business world. Enjoy the podcast. So, Paul, welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage. Thank you very much for having me. So, Paul, can you tell me a little bit about how your agency career and that experience influenced your focus on helping people manage workplace pressure? Yes, certainly. Well, I've, I've experienced it um, both as a you know, right from the very beginning when I started at Ogilvy as a, as a, as a graduate trainee, being a young account exec, running around organising things, managing clients at that level, right through to uh, my last few years in the industry was running um, the agency VCCP Health, which led to different sorts of stresses and strains around managing a company, managing staff, managing P&L and all those things. So, I, I, so when I left the industry, I thought, well, I've certainly experienced stress in, in, in all its forms. Uh, and I think the industry is quite a stressful one. I think resource is always very tight in advertising agencies. So people don't have much extra capacity to, to stop and reflect and breathe. It's full on, it's fast paced and so on. And I was just interested in the whole subject. And I was inspired actually by a friend of mine who went on some training and said to me oh Paul it was all a bit woo woo it was all a bit touchy feely and I I'm not very touchy feely myself so I wanted to see if there was something that was rooted in science and that's what got me interested in this whole area I spent about 18 months researching the science of uh, how uh, the body and brain respond to pressure and stress and the more I looked into it the more I found it fascinating and interesting and thought perhaps I could do something that could help people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that at an individual level, we have probably all been through some sort of workplace stress or anxiety or felt the pressure at work. So I think it probably, you know, it's relevant to all of us at at some level, whether we're going through it right now or have been through it in the past. Um, Now, at the beginning of your your workshop, your your course, you talk about um, what's happening with the body and brain when we're faced with a stressful situation at work. Um, So what is going on behind the scenes? Well, yeah, this is an important foundation to understand things. Uh, um, So in the brain, we have two parts, two significant parts of the brain involved in all of this. One is the prefrontal cortex, which is where we do all our proper analytical thinking. Um, And then we have a section called the limbic system, which is in the middle of the brain. And that 
reacts, what responds when we're under pressure or faced with a challenging situation. And it does two things. It sets off a whole physical response, which involves hyping up the body to give you energy to get away from whatever you're dealing with. So that involves various hormones being released, sugar going into the blood and so on. And the second thing the limbic system does when we're faced with a challenging situation is it generates what are called lower order emotional reactions, which I know we're going to talk about in, in a moment. But put very bluntly and crudely, this is the oh shit response when something stressful is happening. Now, the key thing to understand is that the limbic system works much, much faster than the prefrontal cortex, much faster than that proper analytical, sensible part of our brain. And you can probably guess why it works faster, because if you're in the street and a car comes towards you, you haven't got the time to think about it with the prefrontal cortex, but the limbic system will spring into action and potentially save your life, because it will put sugar into your blood, it'll release adrenaline into your body, all to give you the energy to jump out of the way, and you'll have an oh shit response as part of that. So that's why it's there and that's why it works quickly. However, that is not so helpful when it's firing off all the time when we're working in a company or in an advertising agency. Uh, and that's exactly what it's doing. Now, just to explain a little bit more about the, the, the balance between these two parts of the brain, I was given an example which I think people can relate to. I'm sure you've been in a situation where somebody says something to you and you have an immediate negative reaction. Or you could get an email from somebody and you have this immediate negative reaction. And then a few seconds pass and you feel yourself having a more measured response. Well, what you're experiencing there is the limbic system is what goes first and gives you that negative reaction. Uh, and then because it takes a few seconds to catch up, the prefrontal cortex takes a few seconds to give you that more measured response. So that's a good way of understanding how these two parts of the brain are working. Um, if, on the other hand, in response to that thing that somebody said or in response to that tricky email, you immediately say something you regret, then the limbic system has hijacked the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex is left doing the regretting because that's the sensible part of your brain. So all the way through your day, if you've got a big meeting, a big presentation coming up, these two parts of the brain are competing. Um, uh, the limbic system will be saying, run away, run away, it's all going to go wrong because it is this basic survival mechanism. Whereas the prefrontal cortex will be saying, no, 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 it's fine, it's our job, we've rehearsed, we know what we're doing, uh, it's fine. And it's this tension between the, those two parts of the brain that really causes the stress and anxiety that we feel. And what I talk a lot about in my workshops is just understanding the types of thoughts that the limbic system generates so that we can step away from them or let them pass. You can't stop it from working. You can't stop it from working as quickly as it works because it needs to be there to save our lives when the situation arises. But knowledge is power, Hugh, I think, and understanding how it works, the types of thoughts it generates, uh, is, is a key to, to uh, managing uh, managing stress. That's great. Thanks, Paul. So from, from what you were saying there, it's one of the reasons why we should never fire off that response email when we get a tricky email at work. No, I, and I think think about how many... I know this personally, Hugh, is, is I, I've, I've often written that email yeah. and then I've thought, no, I won't. And then the next day I come and look at it and think, oh, thank 
God, I didn't send that email. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. And you end up writing a completely different email. You almost delete it and say, right, let's start again, you yeah. know. So that temptation to, to respond quickly, I think, is a dangerous one. And when I um, have been sort of going through a tricky period at work or a stressful period at work, sometimes it keeps me up at night. And that's the time when I tend, my brain tends to go into overdrive. And one of my tendencies in the past has been to catastrophize. You think, yeah. oh, if this, then that, then this. Yeah. And ultimately you end up losing your job, your home and yeah. you're destitute, um, yes. which is ridiculous. I know it is, but yeah. it tends to happen with me. Um, now, can you talk me through that? you know, the fact that we can sometimes catastrophize and some of the other common limbic thinking traps. Yes. Well, first of all, let's just talk about sleeping, waking up in the middle of the night, Mm. Uh, because what happens when you wake up in the middle of the night, if you're anything like me, uh, which sounds like you are like me, you you don't really get anywhere. You you go round and round in circles. If anything, it gets worse. And um, you don't solve the thing you're thinking about. And eventually you get back to sleep. and, And then in the morning, I tend to find I wake up and I have a clearer perspective, a bit of a fresher perspective probably got a bit of an answer to what I'm thinking, worrying about. And also, I tend to think, why on earth was I worrying about that at three in the morning? Well, what's happening there is when we wake up in the middle of the night, the limbic system comes roaring to life because it's this kind of survival mechanism. The body sees you're in a bit of trouble. You're awake at three in the morning. But the prefrontal cortex stays sedated. It's quite hard to wake it up once you, you've gone from a deep sleep. So what you're experiencing there is thinking with the limbic system. And you can see it's not very good for problem solving. It's not very good for the, to work out the solution to what you're dealing with. So that's just a point about sleep. But yes, catastrophizing is one of the key sort of thinking errors, the most basic thinking traps that the limbic system generates. It's all going to go wrong. It's all going to be a disaster. One thing, as you say, will lead to another. And if, you, if you're interested in this and you Google thinking traps, thinking errors, you'll find about 20. But in my workshop, I tend to sort of talk about six um, because they can overlap and it can be a bit confusing. So I try and narrow it down. The first one is indeed catastrophizing, assuming things will go wrong. Um, the other part of catastrophizing is if they do go wrong, assuming the outcome will be terrible, you know, and um, that is also often not the case, as we know. In fact, I, I often quote a uh, philosopher, French philosopher, Michel de Montaigne, who said, there were many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. I love that. And, you know, it's absolutely true, isn't it? It's absolutely true. So catastrophizing, I'd say, is number one. The second one is mind reading, which is jumping to conclusions about what somebody is thinking or will think. Uh, We do that with our line manager. We do that with the people who report to us and in, in, in agencies or any kind of service business. We do it with the client, you know, um, and and it's often a one uh, a one two punch. Catastrophizing and mind reading make a potent combination. You know, we can't present that the client won't like it. It will be a disaster. We'll be fired. I'll lose my job. Um, and how many times I've certainly seen in agencies where you do present that and the client loves it and it's the the best idea you've got on the table. So it's a, such a potent force. So catastrophizing, mind reading. The third one. Um, I talk about is personalising, assuming you are to blame, um, being a self-critic, assuming you're not good at your job. And uh, this overlaps a bit with something I see quite a lot, particularly with younger people in, in companies and agencies, which is this feeling of imposter syndrome that, you know, they shouldn't really be there. They don't deserve to be there and so on. And personalising is quite a powerful force. In agency life, um, 
it it happens because you know things can get fraught there's a chain of people involved in something emails are flying backwards and forwards they might be written quite quickly and it's easy to read one and think oh they're having a bit of a pop at me here and actually they're not they're just something needs to be done or changed or uh, uh, you know revised but it's very easy to think this is all about me um, the best example I always give of personalising is if you send a text or a message to somebody and they don't reply and you suddenly think, oh, hang on, uh, let me just reread the text I wrote. Did I say the wrong thing? Um, now, when we last met, did, did we have a tricky conversation? All of these things go through your mind, personalising. And then they reply a day later and say, oh, sorry, I was busy, you know, <laughs> and, and, but our brain has, has raced away with all of this self-critical stuff. So catastrophizing, mind reading, personalising. The fourth one is filtering. So that is picking out the negative side of something rather than seeing the positive. It's kind of glass half empty rather than glass half full. Um, you know, perhaps you have a performance review and 80% um, is positive, 20% involves some development areas, but you come out of the review thinking that didn't go well. So that's the fourth one. The fifth one is black and white thinking. So that is thinking that something is very good or very bad, that there's no middle ground in between the two. Very common in agencies, it leads to procrastination, which is a great source of stress, and it leads to perfectionism. Um, changing that slide deck a hundred times when probably the client wouldn't have noticed the last 50. Um, so that that's something that I see commonly in agencies. Um, and then finally, the sixth one, something that I call the tyranny of shoulds. Whenever we use that word should, and it could apply to somebody else, they should have done this, that's not the way things should have been done, uh, or it could apply to you, um, I should have done this, I should have the answer to every uh, problem, etc., etc. Um, and the thing about shoulds is that they, they uh, lead to a lack of flexibility because you spend too much time ruminating on what should have happened rather than working out what you could do. And uh, so those are the six, catastrophizing, mind reading, personalizing, filtering, black and white thinking and the tyranny of shoulds. Now, the key thing is, OK, so, so what does one do with, with all of this? And the key really is if you're aware of these thinking traps, when something stressful happens... Um, and I run exercises in my workshop where people analyse a situation. The key is to recognise straight away, OK, right, I've just had this email. It's a tricky old email. I'm immediately catastrophizing. I'm already mind reading. And recognise those um, thinking traps. Park them, push them to one side, let them pass, however you want to sort of visualise it. And then focus on what you can control. Because in the end, all you can ever do is what you can do and what you can control. And my experience with certainly working with people in agencies is, is, is that they're very good problem solvers, you know. But all of those limbic thoughts, the catastrophe, mind you, get in the way. You know, they get in the way. It's a fuzz that gets in the way. And the key is to step back and pause, let those thoughts pass, identify them, let pass. OK, what can I do? I've got option A and I've got option B. Pros and cons of A are this, pros and cons of B are this. Right, based on my experience, I'm going to do B. And that's all you can do. So in a nutshell, that that's kind of how to try and use these. And actually, you know, I came along to your workshop a few weeks ago. And since doing that, when I do 
lie in bed at night and start to catastrophize, I am able to stop myself That's good. and think I'm being hijacked here. Yes, stop this. Yes. <laughs> and it has been helpful in that yeah, regard. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Now, is there ever a time when stress in the workplace is helpful? <laughs> yes, there is. There is, I think. And, and in, in actual fact, I'm always very keen to point out that this stress reaction that goes on in the body is a helpful thing. Um, the physical reaction of sugar going into our blood, adrenaline being released, all of these things give you the energy to get through a very difficult day, you know, back-to-back meetings and so on. And there is a graph that's been developed, if one can picture a bell, a bell-shaped graph, um, which shows that as um, stress increases, our performance increases because all of these things are happening and they're fueling the body up to a kind of tipping point where the, the stress continues to build and the pressure that we've been able to embrace starts to tip tip down and our performance drops because it turns to anxiety. So if you imagine this sort of bell-shaped curve and you drew a line down the middle, the left-hand side is good stress and the, the right-hand side is bad stress. Um, and, uh, you know, people who leave things to the last minute are kind of starting to generate the beginnings of that curve to put some jeopardy in their mind, which forces the stress reaction and kicks them into doing things. But what I always say is it's up to you where that tipping point happens, depending on how you react to situations, depending on how you react to those thoughts coming into your head, how you reframe your thinking, uh, various other things that you can do, whether it's meditation, how you, um, your relationship with your phone, how you organise yourself at work, all of these things can help push that back. So you have more on the good stress, the helpful stress, and less on the kind of uh, performance deteriorating anxiety-based stress. Okay. So for all of the people listening who are suffering from more anxiety-based stress, how can they start to reframe their thinking? What can we do? Well, I, th- I think it's it's understanding those thinking errors, understanding those thinking traps, being very conscious of them, being aware of them, and, and picking them up, identifying them as soon as something happens. If that requires jotting them down on a bit of paper, oh, I'm catastrophizing, oh, I'm being a perfectionist, I'm procrastinating, uh, uh, I, I, I'm ruminating, I'm annoyed with what somebody should have done, but there's nothing I can do, all of those things, and then just saying, okay, what's a practical plan? The key is to go into practical problem solving mode and and you see it I think with senior executives you know I I often get asked well what's the difference between a senior executive and somebody who's more junior and struggling with stress and not to say senior people don't struggle with stress of course but they they tend to be action orientated people you know they tend to go right okay what's the conclusion from this meeting we can do this or that right let's all agree we're doing that because that makes sense and let's not on to the next thing you know so I think that's it go into Kind of try and go into a problem-solving mode and push those thoughts away. Okay. Yeah, because I've seen people freeze in yes. those situations before now. Yes. You know, and so sometimes you can feel it happening to yourself. Yes. So it's important, isn't it, to be able to kind of just move past that and yeah, yeah, reframe. Uh, so, so some of the some of the things that we've talked about, I've recognised from personal experience how maybe mindfulness can help with yes. this kind of thing. So uh, how how does how how does mindfulness play its role? Well. Mindfulness is a very powerful thing, but I find from my workshops very misunderstood exactly what it is. 
um, what what is it meant to achieve, how you're meant to do it, and so on. And I find an awful lot of people in who come to my workshops have sort of tried it, they and they've given up either because they feel they can't do it, they get distracted, or because they don't see any benefit. Um, so I'll explain a little bit about how you can derive benefit, but first of all, let me just answer your question and explain the science behind it. So there are two thinking pathways in the brain, one called the narrative experience, where we're planning, analysing, pulling on memories and connections, organising things. It's what we do 95% of the time. It's that sort of narrative experience, our brain whirring away, pulling things together, uh, planning things. There's a second thought experience called the direct experience, where we're experiencing information coming into our senses in real time. So that's when we're in the present. It's when we do the kind of things you're asked to do in meditation, like focusing on our breathing, focusing on uh, scanning our body, all of those kind of things. And we hardly do that. We do it about 5% of the time. Most of the time, our brains are racing away. Now, you might say, well, is there any difference? One minute I'm organising things and planning and the next minute I'm sitting focusing on my breathing. They are very different. They light up completely different parts of our brain. And that's the significant thing here. And all that mindfulness and meditation is, I mean, there are all sorts of variations, but the basic principle is that you are practising that direct experience. So you build it up rather like building a muscle and going to the gym so that when that stressful situation happens and you're going through the process I've described, you're more able to go into that direct experience and you're more able to step away from that racing mind. You're more able to step back because you're used to working on this, this pathway. You're used to triggering it. So you're more able to come into it. So Basically, mindfulness helps you observe internal states. It enables you to be more conscious of how you're thinking. Uh, it enables you to be aware of where you are and what you're doing without being overly reactive. So I always say mindfulness meditation is the thing that helps you do everything I've just described. It helps you reframe your thinking, step back. It gives you the tools to do that. Now, then to the, the second part of the, the answer to this question is, okay, how do you do it? And I think the problem is that people try it once or twice, as I say, they find it very difficult to do. They don't feel any benefit and they give up. And what I always say is, you know, try and do it for two or three weeks. Try and use one of the apps, if you can, like Headspace or Calm and all sorts of apps which guide you through it. And try and do it every single day and don't expect anything. That's the key. Treat it like a minor chore, like cleaning your teeth. The first time you do it, you'll probably be very distracted. Fine, leave it. Next day, do it again. Also, probably be quite distracted. Third day, do it again. And you will notice, there's no question that you will notice over time that you're more able to do it. You're more able to focus. You're less distracted. And after a, a, a while, probably about three weeks, you'll even find that when something stressful happens, you feel yourself ooh, just stepping back. You feel you because you're going into that direct pathway, which gives you the capability to just sort of analyze your thinking. And um, you'll, you'll start to find it helps. So I, so I say to people, expect nothing. Do an experiment on yourself and, and you will see you will see the benefits. I hope that answers that yeah, question. It's another long answer, no, but no, it, no, it, it no, takes no. a bit of explaining. Um, 
Now, smartphones are something that feature in our everyday lives that can add to that stress and anxiety, can't they? Can you explain why that might be? Well, I think um, I, I, I always do a little quiz in my workshop where I ask people how um, dependent they are on, on their phone, and, and it is quite scary, the answers that you get back, and you, mm. you see that people people are very, very dependent on their phone, and you know they will answer yes to things like, if I leave the house without the phone, I feel very anxious, I answer the phone at all sorts of hours of the day, even though I'm not expecting anything. Uh, expecting a response from anybody um, and and um, I always ask people you know how do you feel about you know the phone and I would say uh, my minority of people will say I'm quite relaxed I'm happy to use it a lot I like it and so on but really the majority I think are quite concerned about it and the influence it has on their lives um, and um, it's interesting phones work a little bit like slot machines um, they offer us intermittent variable rewards in the same way a slot machine if you're a gambler you're attracted to the handle you know you if you pull that handle there's a chance you might win something you know most of the time you won't win anything but there's always that possibility and it's the same with phones when a phone beeps there's always the possibility we're going to see something interesting that we need to access at that very second. Mm-hmm. And we all know that most of the time we don't. Um, but it's these um, intermittent variable rewards that keeps us addicted. And there's lots of evidence that um, the same things are happening in our brains um, caused by phones that happen with other sorts of addictions which we would be much more worried about like drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be um, but we sort of let them pass and, and I, I do I do worry about the impact of phones um, there's a lady called Linda Stone who um, uh, used to work for Microsoft and she coined this expression continuous partial attention uh, she talks about how technology is rewiring our brains and she says by adopting an always on anywhere anytime any place behavior we exist in a constant state of alertness that scans the world but never really gives our full attention to anything and i was asked i put that quote up and i asked people what they think and nobody ever says no that's not true mm. they, they all say yeah it's true and i think i think our attention is very impacted by phones and i think a lot of the stuff that we see on phones is quite negative and constantly comparing ourselves to other people and mm. so on and I particularly think with younger people, it's it's a, a bit of a time bomb. A previous guest of mine on this podcast uh, wrote an excellent book called Fortitude, which suggested that the responsibility for employee resilience should rest more with the company, actually, than the individual. There's this tendency to put everything on the individual. And obviously, we've been talking a lot about what we can do individually to, to reduce stress, which hugely important. But now what companies and you know managers and business leaders be doing more of to help to do that would you say well i think there's a whole raft of things um the first thing i would say is is be careful that the things you're doing um are not just what i call culture plasters yes which is you know something that is a nice a nice thing sounds like a nice thing to do but doesn't really have much impact and actually masks um, something that's more fundamental that might be having much more impact that isn't being changed. So something like late night pizza orders or football tables. Yeah, in the, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I always quote a, a chap who was in one of my workshops suddenly said in the middle of it, I don't care about the free fruit, which was this sort of seminal moment in the workshop. And, and it, it wasn't 
a criticism of fruit, but it was more that, you know, this was an agency that, that, that once a week delivered fruit, and a lot of agencies do this. Of course, we don't eat enough fruit. Um, but he went on to say, um, I'd rather my boss told me not to look at my phone late at night and answer emails and so on. And I think I think some of the fundamental things uh, to me are around um, how much people are expected to engage uh, out of office hours, um, whether that's through messaging or emails and so on. And, I, and, and um, we started to see uh, companies and indeed countries introducing the right to disconnect. They do that in France. They do they? that in France. They've just introduced it in Australia. And, and I think that's the way forward. And Because and I, I, I really do believe, Hugh, that you've got a situation where in the evening people are sending each other emails. It might be to a colleague or it might be to a client. And the person gets the email and thinks, oh, I feel obliged to respond. They don't really want to. They don't really want to be looking at this. And they they send it back. And then the person who sent the email, their behaviour has been reinforced because they've had an, a reply. So mm. they think, oh, I did the right thing. When in actual fact, neither party uh, wants to be doing this. Um, but it's a sort of vicious circle that goes on. And the other thing that, that I really feel strongly about is there are instances where, um, you know, particularly in an agency life, where it's important we communicate at night because we've got a big meeting tomorrow morning and there's a big pitch and all the rest of it. But they're few and far between. Mm. And I would say that 95% of all of this communication that's going on out of office hours could wait till the working day. Mm. And people would be a lot happier. Uh, and Because uh, it's so important to get home and relax and switch off and, and, you know, enjoy your life, really. Yeah. I used to have a boss that would sometimes message me about work in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. If they, were out, if they were out, you know, in a pub or a club or something, they'd, they'd fire off a message without thinking. And then that would prompt me to sit there and or lie there in bed yeah. catastrophizing. Yeah. Because I think, I don't know what to do about this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's those sorts of behaviours that can be quite dangerous, can't yeah, they? Yeah, they're extremely dangerous. I think they're extremely dangerous. Um, I think it's a challenge with time zones because often I hear companies say, oh, we're working, you know, in different time zones and emails are flying in. But well, my answer is you're not paying your staff to work across two time zones. You're not paying them the salary that would mean I work till six and then work on US time or whatever right. it might be. And increasingly big companies are putting email sign offs that say things like I'm sending you this email in my time zone at my convenience. Please reply in your time zone at your convenience. Mm -hmm. And I think encouraging that is really important. Um, the other thing is you know, behaviour happens because it's allowed to happen. Uh, a good example is people um, working while on holiday. Yeah. And um, I remember having a couple of um, people in, in a workshop who said, uh, oh, well, I, I feel it's incumbent on me. It's expected that I should just keep an eye on emails while I'm away. And I happened to be having lunch with the, the MD of that company um, after the meeting. And I mentioned this and he was horrified. He said, no, 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 I don't expect them to do that at all. I want them to enjoy their holiday. And I said to him, well, have you told them that? And he hadn't. And that's the key thing, is we allow things to happen. Far better to say, right, everybody, don't engage with work when you're on holiday. Mm. Um, somebody else is going to handle it. And then people can feel 
you know, relaxed that that's what they, they should do. Yeah, it's funny though, isn't it? Because I think people even second guess it when they're told those things. Oh, do they really mean it? Or are yes. they just saying it because they feel they should? I mean, I think there's a... I've recognised in certain cultures and companies I've worked at um, that there's a shadow of, of, of the leader taking place. So if someone sees the manager of that team or the leader of that, that, that area acting in a certain way they think well that's what i need to do to, mm. to succeed here. yes they do uh, and that again it's that sort of uh, and, and i i heard something recently i don't know if it was a conversation that we had about leaders leaving loudly yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah. is quite nice well this it? is something an agency i know has introduced uh where they have signs up around the wall saying leave loudly which and what this is about is when you know, the end of the day comes rather than sneaking out, mm. you know, leaving your coat on the back of the chair. Um, you get up and say, right, I'm off. See yeah. you tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so they're encouraging people to finish and go home. You know, all these all these behaviours are just very, very un, unhelpful, I think. And, and, and don't impact profitability. Mm. That's the thing. They don't mm. impact profitability. They don't make companies more successful. They don't make clients happier, mm. but they make staff less happy so my summary of it is is anything you introduce ask yourself is it just a culture plaster mm. or is it something that actually is going to um, impact people i had another great example the other day uh, of a company that's introduced the idea that you can't interrupt somebody when they're having lunch mm. it's a small, i did that this week it's a small yeah. thing isn't yeah. it but it's not a culture plaster. No. It's not a... Because how many times have we sat with a sandwich and yeah. somebody comes up, just got a quick question, and you yeah, take yeah. two seconds. Yeah. Before you know it, 20 minutes, and your lunch has gone. So this company has said, um, please take an hour for lunch. And I think the people at companies are often now trying to put lunch hours in people's diaries. Of course, if, if a client requires a meeting, then you have to cancel that. But ideally have an out for lunch and yeah leave people alone if they're having their lunch yeah. these are small things that are not culture plasters no. that i think add up something else that that I, uh, i've seen a lot of and maybe have been guilty of myself as a manager um is recognizing people for going above and beyond yeah which tends to be the people who are working the hardest or i can see are working the hardest are ones that deserve the recognition right yeah that doesn't necessarily mean they're the most productive no. or produce the greatest the best outcomes but they seem to be busy yes and that gets rewarded yeah and that that is a, a dangerous thing and i i was guilty of that hugh when i when i ran the, the agency within vccp we used to have employees of the month and so on and of course i'd naturally think about the people who'd worked late on pitches and and so on um, and i think it's quite a dangerous thing because it, it says if you work long hours you'll be rewarded so i think i think you've just got to be really careful of this type of thing um I, I really believe that you can be involved in a business that can be very successful, make good money and have a motivated team and work a normal day and stop. You know, I really think you can. Yeah. And I doubt many people would disagree with me, actually. But we allow all these behaviours to sort of develop, you know. Paul, that's fantastic. Really, really enjoyed that conversation. Okay, so Paul, I ask each of my podcast guests to answer six quickfire comms-related questions in around about 90 seconds. You ready for that? Yeah. Good, good. Okay. Be instinctive. Sum up your communication style in three words. Um, clear, succinct, friendly. Of all the comms you receive or emails you get, roughly what percentage do you delete without reading? 
15%. What was the last message that landed in your inbox that really grabbed your attention? Somebody saying they wanted to run a workshop. (laughs) (laughs) Earning some income. In your opinion, what's the one thing a business can do to boost engagement? Stop people from having to answer emails after office hours or messages. What makes a good communicator? Uh, Warmth, clarity, friendliness and, and being brief. Which communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire? Um, well, a topical answer. Alan Bates, the, the chap who's led the, uh, the, the campaign uh, to support the post office um, managers, he is a really, really simple, clear communicator. And the most important thing about him is that he's stuck at it all these years and finally got his message through to people who didn't want to listen. So that I admire him greatly for that. A brilliantly original answer. Thank you, Paul. Really Thank you very that. much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Delete Delete Engage, including live updates and early access to each podcast episode, why not sign up to the newsletter at deletedeleteengage.substack.com. <laughs>